Hi, I'm Eric Carter-Landeen, and you might know me from True Consequences Podcast. And I'm Alex, and you may not know me at all. And, and we, we are, are Dos, Dos Pukenos. Join us weekly as we tell you all about the paranormal in New Mexico. We will cover aliens, ghosts, and other weird happenings and phenomena. You can find Dos Pukenos wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Stay spooky, and don't forget to rate, subscribe, and review Dos Pukenos. Look for us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Dos Pukenos. Peace! Welcome, friends, to another exciting episode of Lucky Charms Unplugged. I'm starting with a disclaimer. I'm cheating. Again. I've had some stuff rock my world in the last few weeks, and I got a little behind in script writing. So, I'm going to use a script that I used for a collaboration with Dos Pequeños, where I got to be a guest ghost on their show. If you have an interest in the paranormal, I highly recommend Dos Pequeños. Eric and Alex are hilarious. Know that I can't tell you everything about what's going on because I don't want to jinx anything. After all, I'm all about keeping my luck intact. But I will say that change is always good and there may be some really cool changes coming up. I'll tell you what happens when it happens. Let's clear up the business first, then we'll get on with the show. If you like the show, please head on over to iTunes to rate and review. You can subscribe to the show right now, right where you're listening. Do that so you can receive notifications every time a new show drops. Of course, remember to share. The more attention I get, the more shows I can drop. If you really like the show, head over to Patreon so you can subscribe there. I have perks lined out for every donation level. All levels get ad-free content, stickers, and some hilarious outtakes. You'll find out why I don't drink beer before I record and what happens when I drink wine instead. The web address is patreon.com slash luckycharmsunplugged. If you'd like to make a one-time donation, please go to ko-fi.com slash cause of death lucky charms unplugged. The merch store is at tpublic.com slash cause of death lucky charms unplugged. With that out of the way, I'm going to tell you the story of Robert Johnson, who became known as the King of the Delta Blues. Robert was born on May 8, 1911, in Hazelhurst, Mississippi, to Julia Dodds and Noah Johnson. At the time, Julia was married to Charles Dodds, who was a successful furniture dealer. Dodds raised Robert as his own, and Robert was unaware that he was illegitimate until his mother told him before her death in 1929. Charles was forced to leave Hazelhurst after a dispute with some white landowners. He changed his name and moved to Memphis, Tennessee. And a few years later, Julia followed with Robert and his nine siblings. For the next eight or nine years, Robert attended the Carnes Avenue Colored School, 
where he learned reading, writing, arithmetic, and also gained his love of music. He was particularly adept at playing harmonica, but growing up, he would always want to play guitar. It was unusual for a black child to gain any kind of education in the 1910s, so Robert was very lucky to have that opportunity. His education would serve him well throughout his life. Robert was known to be soft-spoken and very well-mannered. He could also impress a crowd when performing. He could interact with just about anyone. His mother passed away in 1929 after telling Robert about his biological father. Once he learned that his father was Noah Johnson and not Charles Dodds, Robert took his father's surname. He would use many names over the years, but Robert Johnson would be the one he used officially. Robert was 18 by then and had married a woman named Virginia Travis. He took up farming to support his new wife and played small gigs around Memphis in his spare time. Virginia died in childbirth shortly after they were married. Her family accused Robert of being in cahoots with the devil, since he added secular music to his performances while playing less and less gospel. After the death of his wife, Robert gave up farming and chose the life of a traveling musician. He would play harmonica in front of restaurants and barbershops and bars, and it was around this time that he became adamant that he would play guitar. Robinsonville, Mississippi was a town in the Mississippi Delta area that was known for the blues. Johnson joined in with other musicians, or at least he tried to. He played with the likes of Muddy Waters, Sonny Boy Wilkinson, Sun House, and Charlie Patton, while the others would encourage Robert to play harmonica with him at performances. They would often pack up and leave in the middle of a performance if he picked up a guitar. Sun House later recalled that Johnson was an impeccable harmonica player, but his guitar playing was absolutely painful. Johnson disappeared from the scene for a few years, and it was thought that he had gone back to Hazleton to find his biological father. But when he returned to Robinsonville in 1932, he had suddenly learned to play guitar. In fact... His playing had advanced so far that he was way better than any of his counterparts. All he had to do was listen to a song once, and he could play it. Okay, I'm going to interject here. I play guitar, sort of. I picked it up a couple years ago after not playing since I was a kid. It's taken me two years to barely get my fingers to participate with my fretboard. So for Robert Johnson to go from painful to perfect in a couple of years, that took some doing. Well, as legend would have it, Robert Johnson made a deal with the devil so that he could become the king of the Delta Blues. This happened in October of 1930 at the crossroads of highways 49 and 61. Robert showed up to this spot at midnight on that October night, and he was met there by a very large barrel-chested black man. When the man said to Johnson, you're late, Robert Johnson, 
Johnson replied, well, maybe not. He played a song on his guitar, then he handed the guitar to the devil. The devil tuned the guitar, played a couple of songs, and handed it back to Johnson. Then he told Johnson to play. Johnson played like he had never played before. It's rumored that Johnson told the devil that he would sign a contract with him, but the devil replied that he didn't need a contract. He had Johnson's heart in his hand now and would have it until the day Johnson died. Johnson went on to marry Coletta Kraft in May of 1931, but he couldn't settle down. He went on the road chasing the blues. Coletta died in 1933. By then, Johnson was long gone. Johnson would have several long-term relationships with several women, but none would last. For all of his relationships, he would only father one son, Claude, who would be the heir to an estate worth millions that wouldn't be settled until 2014 after a 60-year-long court battle. Blues musician Johnny Shines found Johnson playing for tips outside of a barber shop in Memphis. Shines accompanied Johnson through the rest of his career, playing in St. Louis, New York, Chicago, and Texas. Don Law found Johnson in 1936 and encouraged him to go to Texas where he could record his music. Johnson recorded 29 songs in five days for Law in Dallas and San Antonio, and these were done in makeshift studios. Of the 29 songs, 25 of them were chosen to be final cuts for records. These were released between 1937 and 1939. Some of these recordings are lost to time now. Very few exist today. After recording, Johnson went back to playing on the road. He ended up back in the Mississippi Delta playing small gigs and working for tips. It wasn't unusual for Johnson to befriend women in the towns he played. Often, these women would give him a place to stay and would keep him in liquor while he was there. More often than not, he could count on them to repeat the favors if he ever returned to that particular town. Johnson loved the ladies, and he loved his drink. Years later, Sonny Boy Wilkinson would recount the story of the way Johnson died. Johnson was playing a barn dance on a plantation outside of Greenwood, Mississippi. He'd been playing in the area for about three weeks and had gotten friendly with a married woman who came to watch him play. Her husband was apparently the jealous kind, and after telling Johnson to get lost several times, he decided to put mothballs in a bottle of whiskey. He gave the open full bottle to Johnson, and Johnson began to drink it. Sonny Boy Wilkinson tried to knock the bottle out of his hands. Wilkinson told Johnson that he should never accept a bottle that he didn't open himself. And Johnson said to Williamson, never try to come between a man and his drink. Johnson reportedly drank that bottle of whiskey dry, then accepted another from the woman that he had been flirting with. Again, Wilkinson tried to intervene, but had no luck. Johnson drank the second bottle dry, too. A few days later, he became violently ill. His stomach began cramping, and he was having trouble breathing. 
The day after that, he began coughing up blood and foaming at the mouth. His last words were allegedly, quote, I pray that my Redeemer will take me from my grave and forgive me for my pact with the devil, end quote. Robert Johnson died on August 16, 1938, at 27 years old. Naphthalene was a common method of poisoning in the Mississippi Delta. Mothballs were easy to come by, but people rarely died of it. Johnson was an exception. He had several contributing health factors that could have helped him along. He had ulcers and esophageal varices that had been diagnosed long before he died, and he possibly had Marfan syndrome. Marfan syndrome is a genetic disorder that's earmarked by unusually long limbs and fingers, maladies of the eye, and an unusually thin frame. Johnson had all of those things. The Marfans could also cause aortic dissection. We also have to take into account that whiskey wasn't as clean as it is now, and blacks weren't allowed to buy the good stuff. So often, they were drinking what they had distilled themselves, or were drinking swill. Swill is usually siphoned off. It's pure methanol. Any one of those things in combination with naphthalene poisoning could have contributed to Johnson's death. Another poison that was mentioned in the stories was strychnine. Musicologist Robert McCormick claimed to have tracked down the man who murdered Johnson. McCormick claimed to get a confession out of him. He later recounted that the man had said that he had used strychnine to poison Johnson. McCormick never revealed the name of the man. The difference in poisons is rather important. Naphthalene rarely kills people, but strychnine kills fairly quickly, within a few hours. Johnson was around for days after the poisoning. So I lean more toward naphthalene or methanol poisoning. There was no formal autopsy done on the body after Johnson died. He was taken to the coroner's office and was reportedly buried in a potter's field. He died penniless and unknown. Years later, a note was found written on the back of his death certificate. It said that the coroner had talked with a, quote, Negro woman, end quote, who attended the dance, and that he also talked with a white plantation owner. It was the plantation owner's opinion that Johnson had died of syphilis. The plantation owner also stated that he didn't call a doctor for Johnson because Johnson didn't work on the plantation. So he didn't feel that it was his responsibility to pay for Johnson's medical care. The final resting place of Robert Johnson is unknown but there are three grave markers in three cemeteries in the area around Greenwood. Today, there are markers in all three stating that these are possible locations of the final resting place of the King of the Delta Blues. A few months after his death, John Hammond went looking for Johnson. He wanted him to play a gig at Carnegie Hall. He hadn't known that Johnson was dead. 
1941, musicologist Alan Lomax went to Mississippi to see if he could record Johnson's work. He was shocked to find that Johnson had died three years before. An anthology of his work was released by Columbia Records in 1961, and this is when Robert Johnson would gain notoriety as the king of the Delta Blues. He would go on to influence many musicians over the years. The story really doesn't end there, though. Of the 25 recordings and outtakes that Johnson had recorded back in 1935, all of them were originals, and six of those originals told of dealings with the devil. The one that became best known was Crossroads Blues. Several bands covered that song, and all of them suffered the consequences for telling the story of how Johnson met up with the devil that October night in 1930. It became known as the Crossroads Curse. Eric Clapton and Cream recorded Crossroads Blues for their 1968 album, Wheels of Fire. Shortly after recording Wheels of Fire, the band broke up, and Eric Clapton found himself in the throes of heroin addiction. By 1970, Clapton had started a solo career. A few years later, he kicked heroin and began to put his life together. On March 20, 1991, Clapton's four-year-old son, Connor, fell from the balcony of an apartment building in New York City. Eric Clapton didn't perform again for several years. The Allman Brothers added their cover version of Crossroads Blues to their live shows in the early 70s. Dwayne Allman died in a motorcycle accident on October 29, 1971. He died at a crossroads outside of Macon, Georgia. On November 11, 1972, Allman Brothers bassist Barry Oakley died less than a mile from the same crossroads that Dwayne Allman had died at a year earlier. He also died in a motorcycle accident. Shortly after that, the band stopped playing Crossroads Blues, and Greg Allman is said to have tried to reverse the curse by writing Melissa. The song refers to a crossroads. Quote, Crossroads, will you ever let him go? Or will you hide a dead man's ghost? End quote. But wait, there's more. In 1975, Leonard Skinner added a live cover of Crossroads Blues to their concerts. At that point, they were at the height of their career. They had chartered a Convair CV240 so that they could get to a gig faster. On October 22, 1977, while en route from Greenville, South Carolina to Baton Rouge, Louisiana, the plane ran out of fuel and crashed near Gillsburg, Mississippi. Twenty-six people were on board. Lead singer Ronnie Van Zandt, guitarist Steve Gaines, vocalist Cassie Gaines, assistant road manager Dean Kilpatrick, the pilot Walter McCreary, and the co-pilot, William Gray, all died in the crash. Twenty others survived, but the band would never regain the notoriety that they'd had before the crash. Led Zeppelin would often perform Robert Johnson's material at concerts. They began including a version of Crossroads Blues in the mid-70s. On July 26, 1977, 
Robert Plant's son, Karak, died of septic shock at five years old. Shortly after that, Plant experienced a nervous breakdown and was unable to continue performing for several years. On September 25, 1980, Led Zeppelin drummer John Bonham was found dead in his bed after drinking 40 vodka shots. Kurt Cobain is also said to have performed Crossroads Blues live at his concerts towards the end of his life. Cobain was at the height of his career when he was found dead of a gunshot wound in his garage on April 5, 1994. To this day, very few musicians will cover any of Johnson's songs, but they'll especially avoid Crossroads Blues. Even at the small jams that I play, if anyone suggests Crossroads Blues, the old hippies will flat refuse. None of them will even learn the song. Okay, so that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. Let me know what you think. I can be reached on Facebook and Instagram at Lucky Charms Unplugged. I can also be reached on Twitter at Lucky Unplugged. Thank you so much for your patience. I promise that I will shuffle my plate a bit so this doesn't happen very often. Thank you for listening, and until next time, let's get lucky.